It is good to see you all, for real. And I just want to let you know as we begin, we will be going through an Advent series until Christmas Day. Advent means arrival or coming into place. But when Christians speak of Advent, we often talk about the first Advent and the second Advent. And Advent is usually celebrated in this season of Christmas, pointing to the first Advent. But also, the second Advent that it points to is the parousia, where Jesus will come again and fulfill all things just as he promised before he ascended. And so the Advent season lasts four weeks, and it begins on the four Sundays before Christmas. It begins with the theme of hope, then peace, then joy, then love, and then you have the Christ candle lit on Christmas Day. So I'd like to address the question, do Christians have to observe Advent? Do Christians have to observe Advent? And I believe the answer is no. But there's nothing wrong with commemorating Jesus' birth and anticipating his return in a formal liturgical fashion. But it's something that we should be doing every day. Every day we should be awaiting the return of Jesus Christ and celebrating the fact that he did come upon this earth to us. But at the same time, we can set apart a certain season to celebrate it together. Many parents of young children will also use an Advent calendar to count down the days until Christmas. And so you may have seen that. There's an Advent calendar, and with each day counting down to Christmas, there's a window or a certain box, and a child would open that box, and within that box would be a treat and a teaching on what Christmas is truly about. And so while celebrating or not celebrating Advent doesn't make you a good and bad Christian or a bad Christian. I believe there is value in celebrating it to remind us all of what this season is truly about. And so every few years, I do plan on doing an Advent series, and this year being one of them. And so the first week, like I've said, the first week of Advent, the theme is hope. And this is from the passage in Isaiah chapter 9. We'll go to verse 2, the first verse that we read. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. The Holy Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, is describing a people living in desperate times. The people of God were living in darkness. We're walking in darkness. To live in deep darkness is to walk and live in deep distress. And this word in the Hebrew for deep darkness is also used in another part of the Bible. Where is this word deep darkness used? It's used in Psalm 23 verse 4. And it's translated there as the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow of death is the same word as this word that has been translated as deep darkness. So the word literally means death shadow, death shadow. So the trouble that the people of God faced 
was as bad, as dark, as a death-like shadow. It means to signify the darkest of times. And to top it off, to top it off when you read this verse, instead of just passing through the valley of the shadow of darkness, instead of passing through deep darkness, the people were living in deep darkness. It must be awful to walk through deep darkness. How much worse would it be to make tent, to make that the place where you dwell, to make that your home? Some of us have gone through times that this describes. We have heard testimonies here, even up on the stage, to this effect. But to perpetually live in it, the horror of it, the weight of what is being described is something that we ought not to miss because this is what sin does. We see in the chapters before, all the eight chapters before this one, the people of God did not do what was good. And throughout the chapters, we see that they had rebelled against God. They had turned from his ways and they faced now what they had coming. And you might think, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty standard. Seems logical, seems reasonable. But that's not the amazing part of this verse. The amazing part is that in this darkness, the deep darkness that they not only passed through, but they lived in, there is a contrast with the deep darkness and a great light. Those that were in the deep darkness have seen a great light. In the Hebrew, the past tense is used, and that's what is being, that's exactly how it's translated here. The past tense is used for future events. It's to note the certainty of the prophecy. It's talking about a light that will come, but it's put into past tense to convey that this is absolutely certain. The people that are living in deep darkness absolutely will see a great light. That's the amazing part. It coincides with what we have learned on how the people of faith see things or ought to see things in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For the people of God who live in deep darkness, in spite of their deserving of shame and punishment because of their submission and subjection to sin, in spite of that, they will see a great light. This is a promise of hope given to God's people. And this light, again, is no small thing. It's light against darkness. It's light against shame. It's light against death, all caused by sin. And so, there are three things that the light does. There are three characteristics to this light that are given in the next three verses. And so, the first one, or the question that we ought to ask is, what does this light give? What does this light 
give. In verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This light gives joy. The Lord increases his people's joy and there is rejoicing before him. And what kind of joy is it? Well, there are two descriptives used here in verse 3. I really like how Alec Matyer puts it. He has a great way of explaining the difference between the two characteristics. And the characteristics here is, as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Why did the author, why did the Holy Spirit say it this way? And it's a worthy meditation to have. Why did he say the joy that I'm going to explain to you as at the harvest and when they divide the spoil? Alec Moyer says this, harvest belongs in the sphere of creation. Harvest belongs in the sphere of creation, plunder in the sphere of history. So harvest is about the sphere of creation, plunder in the sphere of history. And these two spheres are to express every sort of joy ever known. It's to show us that this joy is a complete joy. Every sort of joy ever known. That's what this light will give. So again, what kind of joy will this light give? Every conceivable joy that there is. Next, what does this light do? What does this light do? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder... The rod of his oppressor you have broken as the day, as on the day of Midian. And this light, what it does, it brings deliverance. Brings deliverance. And again, there are two ways that it's shown here. First, the Bible talks about yoke. And it's a callback that the people of Israel would have most certainly thought then of the time they were in Egypt. Just one of the many verses that talks about yoke. In the Old Testament is from Leviticus chapter 26, verse 13. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. It's a pointing back to a certain and complete defeat of Israel's oppressors and enemies. That's what it's pointing back to. Egypt was completely demolished. They were defeated in every single dimension. All the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, everything that they held and they were holding on to was demolished. They were completely defeated. That is the kind of deliverance that the light will bring, that the light does. What about the second part? The second one might be a little harder to catch, but if you are here for our Saturday mornings, it might sound familiar, which I encourage you to do, of course. Come and pray with us as a church on Saturday mornings. The second one 
is about the rod being broken as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian points back to Gideon. And the reason why Gideon was such an important figure in the Bible is because that God purposely chose 300 men, a number so small, they started with 10,000, he would whittle them down, whittle them down, whittle them down to 300, and it was a number so small compared to the numbers that they faced that there would have been no doubt that the work of deliverance could only be accomplished by a supernatural act of God. There is no other way. 300 versus 135,000 soldiers is not an underdog story. This is not something that you will see in the Hallmark Channel or Disney Channel or whatever. It's not even believable as fiction. And yet, this is what God did through Gideon. The deliverance that God brings, that God does, will be of one of complete and utter defeat of the enemy, and it will be brought about by supernatural means. And now the third thing the light will bring will be, verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There will be perpetual peace and everlasting peace. The only reason to get rid of military hardware is because there would be no, no more threat of war or violence. And this third one, to me, may be the tallest order of the three. Joy, I think we could get. You know, I did a whole sermon series on it, I get it, you know. Deliverance we can understand. Puge talks about it all the time, perhaps. But a perpetual peace? Think about that. Would you get rid of all weaponry? All of it? The early 2000s, I read this book once about someone who was lobbying for, lobbying for all the countries in the world to get rid of their nuclear weapons, to get rid of all their nukes. And this person would go from country to country, especially in the United States, and lobby for them all to get rid of their nukes. And this was obviously done at a time where we had peace. I mean, no one did it. No country did it. No one would get rid of their nukes. No, no one, I think, even considered getting rid of their nukes. Because as soon as we would get rid of our nuclear weapons, it doesn't take much imagination, I believe, to realize what would immediately happen to us. Could you then imagine a time where we could get rid of all weapons of war. How would this be possible? How can this be possible? You think 2023, no country would even consider it. You wouldn't even bring it up on the table. You would be laughed at to get rid of weapons of war, let alone nuclear weapons. How would this be possible? 
But the Bible's next answer to this question isn't simply how, but it's who. Who will make this possible? And there is a birth announcement. You know, birth announcements are quite something quite special. I remember one of them for Esther. My wife was when at a family gathering, she told her three nephews, this is on her side of the family, she told her three nephews, I have presents for you. So they're always excited, right? They're excited. And so she would take them to the room to change. Uh, they were t-shirts, right? And then they would present, the nephews would each present the gift that they had to the rest of the family. So we're all waiting for her nephews to come out. And the first, the oldest would come out and his t-shirt, t-shirt would have this imprint and it would have the thing that said, thing one, thing one. Like in the Dr. Seuss character in Cat in the Hat, thing one, right? If you don't know, it's okay. The next one then said, thing two, thing two. And then the third nephew, last nephew came out with his t-shirt and it said, thing three. And then my wife came out with a onesie and put it over her belly and it said, thing four. And all the ladies in her family got it right away. Boom, they got it. They got it right away. They ran to her with tears in their eyes. They were all hugging her and crying. All the men were a bit confused as to why people were crying over ugly t-shirts. And then we had to tell them what that meant. And then everyone would come over and give her a hug and congratulate her. Birth announcements are special. Why? Because the child is special. The child is special. And here's what makes the birth announcement so special. It's not because of what he will give, do, or bring, which he will in the past three verses, we saw that. It's not only because of what he will give, do, and bring, but because of who he is. For for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This birth announcement is sent really early, though. My wife had hers when she was three months pregnant. This is happening 700 years before. What happens when you give a birth announcement, though? When you give a birth announcement, what happens? Hope happens. Hope happens. You look forward to the child being born. And even though it would be 700 years later until Jesus was born, God is giving this gift of hope to his people. A child is born. Talking about human descent. A son is given. He will have the bloodline carried in him. This is talking about a royal bloodline. He will carry the dignity of the throne. Which throne? And it says there in the next verse, the throne of David. This is a messianic prophecy. This is about the Messiah. And this birth announcement isn't simply a spiritual one. As important as that is, it's incredibly important. 
But this birth announcement is a political one, meaning it will affect the things here on earth. You know, a lot of people don't like it when they think Christianity starts to mix with politics. But let me burst your bubble very nicely and kindly here, as softly as I can. Christianity is political. It's political precisely because the leader of Christianity is a political leader. He will carry the government on his shoulders. He will carry the government on his shoulders. And that means all the governments in the world, all the world leaders will be subject to him. And that's what we profess now, isn't it? We profess this now, don't we? We proclaim the legitimacy and superiority of Christ's rule and law over everything else, no matter what country we live in. No matter where we are, Christians proclaim that Jesus is what? Kyrios, he is Lord. He is King. King over the president, king over kings. He is king of kings and lord of lords. That is a political statement because it's true. That's who he is and that's what's being announced here. And during the birth announcements, when you tell people, after you tell people you're having a boy or girl, right? Because now we see it's a boy, right? The son. The very next thing that many people ask will be, well, what's his or her name? What's his or her name? Have you decided on a name? And we're given four names. Four names. Four because this baby is different. Four because each name will reveal a characteristic of whom they should expect. Four because this is no simple child and they, these names belong only to God. The first name, Wonderful Counselor, literally a wonder-inducing counselor. You will be in wonder over the counsel that he possesses, over the counsel that he brings. You thought you were impressed over Solomon's wisdom? Well, this man's name is Wonderful Counselor. He is the epitome of awe-inducing, wonder-provoking counsel. This is the first of his qualifications for king. And the second one is mighty God. There will be no shortage, no lack of strength for him to accomplish what he sets out to do in his wonder-inducing counsel because he is mighty God, everlasting Father. Father is relationship, is it not? And this is the relationship that he will have with his subjects he will have with his people. It's that of a father. He will love, protect, and provide for his people. For how long? Forever. In perpetuity. For all eternity. There will never be a time where he will not love, not protect, not provide for his people. He is everlasting father. And finally, Prince of Peace. His rule will create peace. How will there be peace? He will create it. He will bring forth 
peace. From him will exude peace. Princes were called princes because they were administrators. They were the ones that carried out what was decreed. He will not only decree it as king, he will also bring it to pass as prince. And the peace that he will bring will be, number one, peace with God. Number two, peace with one another. Number three, peace in our souls. We will be whole in every single way imaginable. We will be complete. And that's what it means, and that's what it meant to have shalom. It was a complete harmony. And this is what the sun will do. There will be no end to all of this that he will bring and do. There will be no dimension that will be outside his rule. The justice and righteousness he will convey will be absolute. And how will this be accomplished? How will he accomplish this? Here's the how he will accomplish it. Will he accomplish it begrudgingly? Will he accomplish it lackadaisically? Will he accomplish it by dragging his feet? No, it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The Lord will do this with a passionate commitment. With zeal, he will keep his covenant with his people. He will keep his promises and bring forth to us what has been assured in his word. This is our Lord Jesus Christ foretold to us even 700 years before his birth, but even 2,000 years after we see the effects of his promise fulfilled, still making ripples and waves throughout the universe. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the beginning and end, the Alpha and the Omega, who was and is and is to come. This is our Lord and Savior, our King, Jesus Christ, with whom we will be with and worship forevermore. And so let us hold on to this hope of Christ, no matter what season we currently face. And because we have been given this royal hope of our King Jesus, then let us serve him gladly and worship him only. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we thank you for the promise of hope that we have been given in your Son, Jesus Christ. Where we once walked and even lived in darkness, you have shown us, by your great mercy, a great light. Help us now to live in accordance with the light that we have been given by serving you all our days for all eternity. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on the hope that we have been given so that we can also live in light of this truth that we have been shown in this word. As the Holy Spirit convicts you, lift up all your life, every area to him, that that hope would flood every chamber, every section, every parcel of your heart and life so that you would be a servant that would please him. Let's pray.